Would you join me in a word of prayer before this morning's message? Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, um, we've been doing a sermon series called Follow Me, um, which isn't a reference to me, by the way. Uh, it's what Jesus said to people when he asked them to be his disciples. And we've been doing this because we want to learn more about what it means to be the church. And as I've been sharing, the church isn't a building. It's not an institution. It is not a particular time of day on a particular day of the week. It is the people of God. And uh, those who are the people of God are the church. And wherever they go, church is going. Um, And so uh, that was the first Sunday. The second Sunday we talked about uh, the people of God are... uh, The church is the people of God who follow Jesus. And so... The idea of following Jesus. And we went to Jesus himself to understand what it means to follow him. And he talks about denying yourself, taking up your cross, and follow me. Um, In modern day language, that would be deny yourself, pick up your hangman's noose, and follow me. Um, Not words that any of us are terribly excited to hear uttered to us. Very different than God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, huh? Or as some of my feminist friends say, God loves you and has a terrible plan for your wife. But anyways. <laughs> um, and then the, the third week, we looked at what it means to be the people of God who follow Jesus into the world. And so last week, we took a look at uh, where Jesus talks about his people, the kingdom people being salt and light. And what it means to try to be folks who influence this world. Um, And uh, what it means to get out of the salt shaker, so to speak. And uh, to uh, get into this world and to help uh, keep it from decline and decay and from corruption. uh, To shine light into dark places. And if you remember, I famously uttered, we want to become a party church. Because uh, salt brings joy. It brings joy to your taste buds. It, uh, you notice it when it's not in those McDonald's fries. Um, but you enjoy it when you've got it. And then light is something that brings great joy. Think of Christmas. Think of all the decorations. Think of Disneyland at night. Uh, we celebrate with light. And so the church should be a place that is a joyful place. Um, sadly... Many people don't think of church, both those who come regularly and those who stay away don't think of church as a joyful place. And uh, perhaps we've got some things to work on. Today, though, uh, we're going to continue this little discussion. Um, and I, I, I want to be uh, transparent with you all. I'm, I've been working through some doctrinal issues um, Don't worry, I'm Protestant and I am Orthodox. But I've been working through some issues as to how the bigger picture of church, how the bigger picture of Jesus' work on the cross, how the bigger picture of what God is doing in the world 
what that all looks like. And I must say, I feel I'm on the verge of kind of a eureka moment. Now, being a random abstract person, you never know where those places are. Because if I was concrete sequential, I'd be like A plus B plus C equals that. Whoa, eureka. Um, But since I'm random abstract, I'm like, okay, I think it has something to do with creation. I think it has something to do with Jesus' work on the cross. I think it has something to do with the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth. And maybe this week it'll hit me. I was hoping it would hit me yesterday before I had to preach, but we'll see what happens. But one of the things I want us to consider is what is God's preferred vision of the future? You ever, you probably never have thought about that, but what does God want the future to look like? Now, we probably don't think of God wanting things because we think, well, he's God. He just makes it happen, right? I mean, we're not God. And if we were God, we would make stuff happen. But the interesting thing with God is he's not like us and he doesn't make things happen. He wishes for things and he slowly over time enacts those things. He infiltrates things. Kind of think about salt and light. Uh, It's a slow moving unseen oftentimes process. And what is God's preferred future? What does it look like? What do you think it would look like if God were in charge of Ray, Colorado? What do you think the employment situation in Ray would be like if God was in charge of Ray, Colorado? What would the schools look like If God was in charge of Ray, Colorado, what would the economy be like for the rich, the middle class and the poor in Ray? If God was in charge, what would um, what would health care be like in Ray? If God was in charge. Now, if, as I say that, you're thinking, oh, it'd be like utopia. Everybody would have enough to eat. Everybody would be warm. Everybody would be taken care of. Everybody would be educated. Everybody would get free health care. Everything would be fantastic. You're tracking with me. You know what this would look like. You know that if God was in charge, he would fix all the broken things. If God was in charge, he would bring about justice into Ray, Colorado, so that those who are suffering, those who don't have enough, those who are not taken care of, those who are lonely, those who are in pain, those who have experienced heartache and heartbreak, and those who are longing for something, the king, God, would fix it. Sounds like campaign promises, I realize. And that's why those campaign promises work so well. That's why they work on you. That's why they work on me. Because we go, yeah, there's something wrong and somebody needs to fix it. Notice how we always think somebody needs to fix it. How often do we think I need to fix it? I digress. Now, if God was in charge... He would put everything to right. He would fix everything. 
In fact, we get this vision. We don't make this up. Although if you go and you talk to a non-Christian, most non-Christians would say, yeah, I think if God was really in charge of planet Earth, there would be no suffering. There would be no pain. There'd be no more sorrow. Everything would be put to right. Everything would be okay. And because it's not okay, therefore I can't believe in a God. Or I can't believe in your God. Or I can't believe in the God that everybody talks about. And so instinctively, not just because the Bible says these things, but instinctively we think if God is in charge of this place, if this is my father's world, then it should be fixed. I mean, would you stand it if your house looked like this world? Would you go about trying to fix things? Would you go about trying to correct things? Would you go about trying to put it into order and make it work properly? I think we would. And the vision that God has for his world is, is all over the New Testament. It's all over the Old Testament. And he tells us regularly in, in Isaiah, uh, he talks about becoming king of the world. He talks about, in fact, the Psalm, Psalm 2 that we read today. I have placed my king on the throne in Zion. He talks about his vision, his preferred future. And his preferred future is that there would be justice and that there would be beauty. That these two things would break into this world and that the people of this world would turn to the king and follow him. Now, it's interesting because if you were to ask many people, what does it mean to be saved? What does salvation mean? All of a sudden, lots of people would disconnect that concept from God's preferred future of this world. I mean, think about it. Oftentimes when we talk about, you know, did you, have you been saved? I'm sorry, I always sound like a southerner. I'm like, maybe I need an Arnold Schwarzenegger. Have you been saved? You know, maybe, maybe that's, that needs to be a go-to or something. I don't know. Have you been saved? And when we think of having been saved, we think of spiritual things, don't we? I mean, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I don't want to lead you. If you disagree with me, freely say no. I think most people think of spiritual things. And I think we think of songs that talk about one glad morning when this life is o'er. What does that mean? Why did they leave V's out? All fly away. All fly away. The interesting thing is you don't find that concept in the Bible. You don't find that. That's why we don't sing that song very often. It's got really bad theology. It does. When you die, you're not flying away. When you're die, some of you are looking shocked at me. When you die, you're not flying away. Now, why do we disconnect these two visions of salvation and God's preferred future for the world? Why do we see this as spiritual? It's about saving souls. It's about getting folks saved and out of hell and, 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 and you just believe some stuff. You know, if you went to summer camp when you were five and the counselor, hey, you don't want to go to hell, do you? No. Is that like a field trip at camp? I don't think I'm interested. You know, I mean, you didn't even read Dante's Inferno, but you got some pictures in your mind of what hell is. 
And you're like, no, I don't want to go to hell. Well, if like, you know, that crazy guy around camp that's driving the garbage can, the truck, the garbage truck, if he were to hit you, oh yeah, there's been some close calls. That guy kind of crazy. If he were to hit you, would you go to heaven? Oh, I don't know. I hope so. Well, do you want to know for sure? Oh yeah, I really do. And make it quick because I want to go play with my friends. (laughs) All right, we'll say this prayer. Jesus, come into my life. I know I'm a sinner. Please forgive me on my sin. Come into my life. Amen. Amen. Boom. Go play. Okay. And the interesting thing is, people like me and churches and curriculum writers and authors and all these folks in Christendom are busy trying to figure out how to make disciples of people who got saved. I think a big part of the reason that we're trying to figure out how to make disciples is because, number one, we're not, we don't have the right salvation message. <clears throat> what? I believe that when I was five at summer camp. You see, I think we're, we have a culture of salvation of get them saved. Get them some fire insurance. But we don't have a culture of creating people who follow Jesus. And then... One of the things I like to sit around is go, what's the, what's the great judgment at the end of time going to be like? I mean, maybe you don't sit around and think about these things, but I like to sit around and think about these things. So little Tommy, who accepted Jesus at summer camp, five years old, but has lived his life however he wants the rest of the time, shows up in front of Jesus. Hey, uh, Tommy, good to see you. Did you follow me? Well, I I believed in you. Yeah, you also believed in Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy and demons and Satan and evolutionary theory. You believed in a lot of stuff, Tommy. Did you follow me? Well, the camp counselor said nothing about that. He just talked about a, a dump truck hitting me and believing in you so I don't go to hell. So I'm cool with that, right? Yeah, yeah. No, did you follow me? Like, I'm king. I'm king. Do you, do you want to be my subject? Do you want to be in my kingdom? Have you done stuff to build my kingdom in your lifetime? Or has it been about you? Uh, what do you mean? Like, go to church occasionally and give some money? Is that, is that what you meant about following you and building your kingdom? What do you mean? And you see, there's this disconnect... In modern Christianity, in Western Christendom, and it started with a guy named Anselm. That's who we have to blame. Uh, We shouldn't blame him. He's a good guy. I mean, I have no beef against him. But Anselm, he was was in the uh, Anglican church, and he began a new theory of atonement. It's in the scriptures. It's not a bad theory. It's a good theory. He began a new theory. It's called the satisfaction theory of the atonement. And most of you are going, I don't care. Hurry along. The satisfaction theory of atonement started with Anselm, and he he finds it in Scripture, and it's this idea that there is a God whose justice has been crossed, that, that God is completely just and we're not, and that God's justice needs to be satisfied, and the way it's satisfied is by Jesus' death upon the cross. And you've heard me say that, and that's true. He also said that this was a better theory than the early theory that the church had had 
leading up to him when he came along in 1030s. The, the theory that the church had mostly had until him was the ransom theory of the atonement. And the ransom theory of the atonement is in the scriptures. Jesus said, I will give my life as a ransom for many. And the ransom theory of atonement, which the early church held on to, was that they believed that what happened was that Jesus came and gave his life as a ransom. And through his death on the cross, he emerged victorious by his resurrection. And when he emerged victorious, he, he, he beat Satan. He, he beat death. Because death is ultimately what will get you. You know it'll get you, right? It'll get all of us. But that's the hope. That's the surprising hope. That Jesus beat death. That Jesus beat Satan. That Jesus beat sin. That he rose from the dead. This is the ransom theory of atonement. Or what's called now the Christus victor. That Jesus is victorious. That Jesus is the victor through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead and his appearances to many people. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the gospel. Now, Anselm developed the satisfaction theory. And then after him, Calvin developed some punishment ideas into the satisfaction theory. That God needs to punish our sin. And that's clearly in the scriptures. There's this notion that God needs to punish sin. And that he took out his punishment. He can, he can take it out on somebody. It's going to be taken out on somebody. He doesn't care who it is. But he's going to take it out on somebody. And the somebody that you hope it would be would be Jesus for you. And the way you have God's punishment taken out on Jesus instead of you is that you put your faith in Jesus. And this is clearly taught in scripture. But what happens when we disciple people? What happens when we save people to a single facet of the atonement? Huh? What does that mean? Scholars have been wrestling with the atonement theory since Jesus died and rose again. (laughs) And what I want to argue is that the atonement is like this multi-sided diamond. Have you looked at a diamond recently? My brother's been looking at diamonds, but that'll be an announcement for another time. <laughs> now, if you look at diamonds, I'm going to have to edit that out. If you, if you look at diamonds, if you look at diamonds, light hits the diamond and it scatters it all over the place. And that's why they glisten. That's why they're beautiful. That's why it's like, whoa. But have you ever seen a diamond that's, that's not multifaceted? That's in the rough. Not terribly exciting. Unless you're the one that found it. It's not very beautiful. And so I want to suggest to you that we have to... What theologians are kind of doing is that they look at the scriptures and they're polishing off different parts of this diamond. And they're seeing different parts of it. And Calvin comes, it's about punishment and God's, God's taking his wrath out on Jesus and he's removing the punishment from our sins. And yeah, that's a good facet. Ooh, that's beautiful. That's awesome. I like that. And then he built upon Anselm who polished over here and he said, it's the satisfaction theory. It's that God's uh, justice is satisfied in the death of Jesus. And I know some of you are bored, but stay with me. And then the ransom theory, you know, they say, Hey, it's about Jesus emerging victorious. 
And by the way, there's a lot of other theories. There's like 15 theories about what happened on the cross with Jesus. And let me tell you this. They're all in scripture. And we neglect them to our detriment. We need to have this multifaceted gem that we can look at and go, whoa. Because all of history leads up to this cross. And all of the future goes away from the cross. And all of the future is coming back to the cross. And all of history is going, it's like the cross, this gem, this diamond sits there. It's for us to contemplate. It's for us to think about. But if we emphasize one of them, maybe we won't understand what it means to follow Jesus. And maybe we'll have a bunch of anemic disciples. Now, if you're an anemic disciple, sorry I called you that. It's not for me to judge. It's for you to decide. Are you a disciple of Jesus? Are you following him? When you stand in front of him and he says, whose kingdom have you been building? Are you going to be like, well, I believed in you. I gave some money. I showed up every once in a while. I I did my duty. And by the way, if you've been here for all the three weeks, we've been saying that the church isn't coming here. (laughs) Okay. Being, being right with Jesus, being a part of the family of God, being part of the people of God, isn't how you spend an hour on Sundays. It's not how you give some money away. It's not how you serve a handful of people. It incorporates those things. The question is, are you following Jesus? Is he Lord in your life? Because that's the question he will ask. Who's Lord? And he'll roll a film. It's not posted on YouTube yet. Maybe GodTube, I don't know. But he will roll a film strip of your life and my life. It's kind of like when he confronted Adam and Eve in the garden. And you read that and you're like, they're a couple of knuckleheads. Like they're hiding from God? Come on, who would do that? That's stupid. All he's got to do is back up the tape and go, you ate the fruit, people. Well, no, the woman you, you put here. It's her fault. It's like the marriage retreat we were at yesterday. You know, Adam has the nerve to blame Eve. And then God, the woman you put here. So it's really your fault. You know, if you've ever raised children, you know how that whole thing works. You didn't clean your room because it's my fault. What? You know, it's just amazing logic. We're good at blame. And all God had to do is come here, Adam. This is a DVD player. It hasn't been invented yet, but let me show you. We had some hidden cameras around the Garden of Eden and take a look. But God, I'm naked. Yeah, how did you figure that out? Uh, the woman you put here. And then he goes, Eve, the snake told me. You, you paying attention to talking animals now, Eve? Here's the video. Roll film. And there's actually this picture of the last judgment in the New Testament. It's like God's going to roll film. Did you follow me? Was I Lord? Uh, yeah. Uh, except for then. Well, the woman you put there, 
the children you gave me, the lack of income I had, the city I was raised in, how I was raised, the church I grew up in, the Baba. And it's so easy to see how lame excuses are in other people's lives, right? It's super easy. I mean, Adam and Eve, that's a dumb excuse, Adam. You ate the fruit. But when it's us, oh, well, <laughs> those are really good ones. God's going to totally buy it. I believed in you, God. So did the devil. Says it in the New Testament. So does Satan and the demons. Their theology is better than yours. And yet, they don't follow me as king. They rebel. Are you a rebel or are you a follower? Are you in the kingdom? Now, there's this really cool story that I really want to look at really quickly. And I think it's already on the screen because some of you are looking at stuff. Um, Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. There's this story that I want to camp out on. Just briefly stick with me because there's a word in here that shocks those of us who think salvation is about spiritual stuff. And it's Jesus who uses the word. Now, in chapter 9 of Matthew, Jesus, um, you know, he, he's forgiving and healing paralyzed people because that's what Jesus does. That's how he rolls. And then he's calling a tax collector, an on-purpose sinner, a really bad guy because that's what Jesus does. That's how he rolls. Um, and then he's questioned about fasting. They don't like that he... That his disciples get to eat, you know, whatever they want, and Pharisees and others are fasting. And then there's this question that, well, there's this, this situation that occurs where there's this leader in the synagogue whose daughter just died. He's desperate. He's heard that there's a prophet in town who heals people. <laughs> You're a dad. You're a mom. What do you do? This guy runs, runs to Jesus. He runs to Jesus. Some of you just needed to hear that today. Jesus is there and this guy runs to Jesus. He thinks, maybe I've got a shot. Maybe this guy can help me. Maybe this man can raise my daughter from the dead. Now, why on earth would he think that? Because he was one of those unsophisticated, ancient, first century people, and they thought that kind of stuff. No. No. They didn't think. They understood, just like you and I understand, that people die and they don't come back. Because it happened to everybody they knew. And they saw it firsthand far more than we see it. He understood that her, his daughter was not returning. And he heard about a prophet who might do something about it. So he runs to him. Now there's a problem. Because if Jesus is a good Jew, he can't touch a corpse. Because if you touch a corpse, it'll make you ceremonially unclean. There's another problem. There's a woman in the crowd who's been suffering from internal bleeding, from hemorrhaging. And she's unclean. And the reason that the Jews have these laws is because they're a bunch of meanies. Wait a minute. The reason they have these laws is because disease is associated with corpses, correct? And with blood. 
They didn't even have a germ theory yet, but they had a God who cared about them. And God outlined some ideas of, hey, don't touch this stuff. And if you do, wash yourself because other people don't get it yet because I haven't shared with them this information. Wash yourself and then don't hang out with other people for a day just in case you got it. And this woman who's unclean is shoving her way through the crowd. She's making everybody else unclean. She's taking a huge risk. And she touches Jesus. She thinks, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Verse 20. Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if only I touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed from that moment. And you're like, okay, what does that have to do with salvation? Well, in the Greek, the word for healed here... Because there's a good Greek word for healed, and it's not the one that's used here. The word that's used here is sozo, which means saved. It's the same word we use for salvation. It's the same word when we talk about being saved from our sins. And this bugs Protestants to no end. This bugs us because we're like, wait a minute. Salvation is a spiritual thing. Salvation is about your soul. And here Jesus is, is saving her. Yeah. He's saving her. How does that work? Well, it doesn't work if your view is that in the sweet by and by we'll fly away someday. And that's what it means to be saved. But if your view is that God wants to put all things to right, that God wants to put everything together the way it was meant to be, that God wants to bring health care to women like this. And he did. He fixed her. All she had to do was touch him. Wow. How many of you like that kind of health care? Oh, my hip's kind of bugging me. I'd really like to go out and run a mile. Can't do that. I'll go touch Jesus. Hey, I'm feeling really good. How cool would that be? I'd sign me up. It's free. This is the health care Jesus offers. And not only the health care, this is the salvation. Sozo, that's the word here. It's the Greek. Nobody argues with that. This is the rescue Jesus offers. And the early church understood that Jesus was a king. He was Messiah. He was the anointed one of God. He was the king of the Jews. He was the king of Israel. They spent all this time explaining that in this book, Matthew, by giving you this genealogy, which we Westerners go, huh? Why aren't there some pictures? And Matthew, who's a Jew, and his audience, who are Jewish, go, Oh, Messiah. Matthew's arguing that Jesus is Messiah. Wonder how this ends. Wonder how this goes down. I don't think it ended well because the Romans are still here. I thought Messiah was supposed to do something different. Maybe I should read this book. So they read the book. They come to this. It reads, Jesus rescued this woman, which meant he fixed her physically. But he also rescued her. He brought her into the kingdom. 
The kingdom is infecting her life. The kingdom is infecting this world. Instead of Jesus being infected by her, he infects her. And if you follow Jesus, if you are the people of God who follow Jesus into the world, you will go out and infect people. That's what salt does. That's what light does. It infects. It changes. It transforms. Now, why is this so important? Why did I spend half an hour trying to explain all this? Good question. Because how we understand if Jesus is busy trying to save our soul for the sweet by and by and one day we're going to fly away, we will build a very different church than if we understand. If we understand that God wants to fix this world. You see, if we are a church, if we are the people of God who believe that God wants to fix this world and he wants to start with you and with me and he wants to invade Ray, Colorado... So he wants everybody in Ray to have an opportunity to make a good living. He wants every kid in Ray to make, have a good education. He wants every person in Ray to have their health care and have their health needs met. He wants every person in Ray to be well-fed and warm. He wants every single person in Ray to experience justice, that it would be put to right. Because in the Old Testament, God said, let justice roll down like a river. And he wants to put the world to right. And not only that, he wants Ray to be beautiful. He wants it to be a beautiful place where the arts and the, 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 the creativity of people just explodes. Because to create beautiful things is to join God in being a creator in his beautiful world. And this, by the way, this is a side. This is free. Tune out if you don't want this. This is the best argument about atheism that exists in this world today. An atheist cannot explain beauty. Because an atheist looks at beauty and goes, well, I know it's just a chemical reaction as this input is taken into my eyes and into my brain. And then there's these chemicals and it goes, wow, that's a beautiful sunrise. I know it's all just chemicals. I know I shouldn't have emotional reaction to it. I know I shouldn't love her and think she's beautiful. I know I shouldn't love him and think he's beautiful. I know I shouldn't be moved in any kind of real way by this art. There's no purpose for it. I mean, how can you explain the survival of the fittest with art? It's the best argument about atheism is beauty. And the church at one time led the charge in the arts in creating beautiful things. And it is time for the church to once again claim that. And to raise up filmmakers, musicians, and artists, and writers, and people who write poems. (laughs) We've abandoned the arts. And then we're all upset when Hollywood is dark and decay and immoral. That's what happens when there's no salt or light. That's what happens. But at least we have our Bible studies. At least we have our salt shaker. At least we have our flashlight. How would we build a church? How, what would we create in this town? I don't even, let's not even talk about a church building. Let's talk about something on Main Street that we could create. A place that would encourage and develop the thriving metropolis of Ray. 
that every person in Ray would benefit, whether they believe what we believe or not. A place that people would experience justice, whether they believe in Jesus or not. A place where people would walk in and experience beauty, whether they believe in Jesus or not. And as a result of justice and beauty, they start asking questions and they start going, there's more? There's more? There's a God who created this beautiful world? There's a God who one day wants to put this beautiful world back together in all of its beautiful beauty from the beginning. And you get to play a role in that now. And then evangelism happens because people ask questions. Now, why did a church open up a yogurt shop on Main Street? Why would you do that? Because we really like yogurt and we needed some yogurt in town. Why did a church open up a, a play area for mothers and preschoolers on Main Street? Because cause we really like kids and we just needed some places for them to be. No? Because we want to make Ray a better place for everybody who lives here. Because that we, we see that Jesus did that for people in the New Testament. And that was the beginning of this work. We get to participate in the saving, the rescuing of this world. We get to play a part. We get to build the kingdom of God. And it's not this abstract pie in the sky, fly away to the sweet by and by sort of kingdom thing. It's here. It's now. It's tangible. It's roll up your sleeves and get her done. Or like some of my redneck friends like to say, go big or go home. That's my gauntlet for you today. We going to get her done? We going to go big or go home? Are we going to follow the king and build his kingdom? Or are we going to be busy arguing about ours? Are we going to join Jesus in rescuing this world? And bringing about a compelling vision of Jesus. A winsome vision of Jesus. A Jesus where people go, wow. I thought it was all about getting beat over the head at church. Well, come on Sunday and you might. But we want to love you. To care for you. To create a beautiful place for for you to thrive in. Because we want you to know Jesus. The just and beautiful king. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that um, that you are king. It is because you are king that you can save us. It is because you have worked and orchestrated such an amazing rescue plan that we have an opportunity to join you in that to help your kingdom break into this world. And yeah, it'd be a lot easier if you would just get her done. But it wouldn't be nearly as fun for us. So I pray, Father, that you would put in our hearts a vision of your vision of the future of Ray. And we would join you in that. Holy Spirit, make it so. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. May justice roll down the mountains like a river. 
May beauty resonate from the people of God. May all peoples be drawn to the justice and beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to know him and love him in Ray and beyond because of us. Amen.